Welcome to Bible Study. My name is Kristen Noop, and I will be your host. A little bit about me. Okay, I think the Bible is fascinating. Conversations about biblical stories lead us to reflect on ethics, motivations, worldview, calling, truth, God, history, human rights, why we're here, why anything matters, and what we can do about any of it. But the Bible is also difficult to make sense of if you don't have some tools, like a study Bible or some friends, both the ones that can offer you a more seasoned and wise perspective and the ones that can call BS when you give a superficial answer. It's helpful to have a variety of commentaries, to know how to evaluate those commentaries, a knowledge of history, specifically ancient Near East and the intertestamental period and ancient Rome. Then there's things like hermeneutics, exegesis, facility with Greek and Hebrew. Those can help. And of course, experience, practice, time, desire, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Most of us have access to just a couple of those. But in my 20s, I had the awesome privilege of spending five years in seminary, a graduate school for theological education. Granted, a lot of people got the same degree in three years, but I was working part-time, got married. I was awarded a Master of Arts in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, where I basically learned how to study and write, where the resources are, and some better ways to think about thinking about theology. All that to say, I'm no master of theology, simply someone who paid to listen and learn about who's been writing about theology and why people think different things about theology. I've been on church staff at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas for 10 years, where for my actual job, I get to reflect on and study the Bible with pastors, friends, moms and dads, older people, younger people. It's been great. I also live with a guy who has a job in the real world who doesn't get paid to read the Bible. And that is who the B-Team Bible study is for. So enough about me. We're spending the next six months in the book of Acts in the New Testament, so go find it now. Go to your table of contents or flip to the New Testament. Acts comes after the four Gospels. While you're finding it, Gospels are essentially ancient biographies of Jesus' life told from four different perspectives, Matthews, Marks, Luke's, and John's. Much of the Gospel content overlaps, but each Gospel has some unique stories as well. Kind of like how if you and me watched the same car accident happen, we might notice a lot of similar things, but a few different details. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of similar content. They are often called the synoptic gospels, the Greek roots there being sin and optic, suggesting a united vision. The fourth gospel, John's account, was likely written a bit later than the others and has a lot of content only found in John. Luke's gospel, his ancient biography of Jesus' life, has a part two, the book of Acts. Today we begin our study of Acts, and we are just looking at two verses— Next week, five verses. The week after that, we'll look at five more. Then we'll launch into longer chunks. But there's so much in these first few verses, and we want to orient ourselves well to our long-term task of a transformational encounter with God through the Holy Spirit and a deep dive Bible study. Acts starts like this. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Those are the first two verses. If you have a study Bible, you can pause this and take a few minutes to read those introductory comments about authorship, dating, purpose, and themes. Those are super helpful. If you don't have a study Bible, get one. I'll post links to some recommended ones on this episode page. Side note, I'm also a really big believer that if you only have 10 minutes to read the Bible, don't read about the Bible, like those intro pages. Jump into the Holy Word itself and let the Holy Spirit be your guide. 
Let's go over some of that background now. The author here, the guy who says, I wrote, is Luke, the same guy who wrote Luke's gospel. Luke is a physician, a Christian, and a traveling companion of Paul, who we will meet in a couple of chapters. He is mentioned in several of Paul's other letters in Colossians 4.14 and 2 Timothy 4.11 and Philemon. The first narrative he references is the Gospel of Luke, 24 beautiful chapters recounting the teaching and miracles of Jesus that will, of course, seriously challenge and convict us, upending what we think we know about God. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus in Greek means lover of God, if you access those roots. This might have been a particular man of elite social standing in the Roman world, or more likely representative of the Greek-speaking, sophisticated audience to whom Luke was recounting the life of Jesus, and in Acts, the unstoppable mission of the triune God to the ends of the earth. That last line was a quote from William Larkin from the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary on Acts. I'm still not quite sure how to quote people in a podcast, but I'll start including references in the episode page. Acts was likely written in the early 60s A.D., The biggest reason for this earlier dating is that the book ends with Paul in prison. If it was written later, it seems unlikely that Luke would have neglected to include the outcome of Paul's trial, his execution, and some other major world news events that happened in the mid-60s, such as Nero's fire that destroyed two-thirds of Rome, and his subsequent persecution of Christians, the Jewish revolt in 66, and the fall of Jerusalem in 70. This practice of notable exclusions is one way scholars think about how to date biblical literature. Let me read our scripture again. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The day he was taken up refers to the events recorded in Luke 24, where after Jesus' death and resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances, he returned to the Father. He left earth to take his rightful place of authority in the kingdom of heaven. This event is referred to as the Ascension, and according to Luke, it happened at a place called Bethany. Let me tell you a little bit about Bethany. It's less than two miles from Jerusalem, where Jesus spent the last week of his life. Ancient Bethany was known for its almshouse, a place for caring for the poor and sick, and most notably, it was on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives, placing it outside the view of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry takes him to Bethany on at least five occasions. In John 11, it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead, so he's at the home of Martha and Mary. He has dinner with Simon the leper, where the woman poured perfume on his feet. It's the place from which he entered Jerusalem during what we call Holy Week. For first century Jews, it was that exciting week of families sojourning and reconnecting and celebrating the Passover. And it's where Jesus and his disciples slept each night during the final week. So this was also the place of his ascension. Now I'm getting into conjecture here, but what meaning can we make from this location? Bethany being his final place of ascension. In the last couple of lines of Luke's gospel, he says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. He led them there. He chose Bethany as the place of his ascension. This place that captured those who could not keep up with modern life, who were poor and downtrodden, sick and cast off. How is this consistent with the Jesus that Luke described? It's very consistent. According to Luke, Jesus is a champion for the poor, the cast off, the ones who can't keep up, the ones who don't know better, whose hearts might desire the kingdom of God, but their means to keep up with religious requirements are limited. 
To me, this is deeply meaningful. As a, as a person with lots of means at my disposal to attempt to keep up, I easily forget that conquering the success culture that surrounds me is hardly the point of my life. Looking at our verse again, and what were those orders he had given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen? Again, you have to look at the first narrative at Luke. After Jesus' death, the disciples, the men and women who had given up their lives for his cause, who bankrolled his ministry and staked their reputations on him, they were dumbfounded. Despair and grief don't begin to capture the shock and loss that they were barely beginning to process. And then something utterly otherworldly happened. Three women went to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning after his Friday execution, and his body was not there. An angel appeared. They tripped over themselves in further shock as they ran back to the group of disciples and reported what they had seen and heard. That very day, two more disciples had reason to travel seven miles to a nearby village called Emmaus. One of them is named in the encounter, Cleopas, and tradition assumes it was another male disciple, perhaps a friend. But could it have been Cleopas and his wife, Mary, one of the disciples who is named as part of the women tending Jesus at the cross, according to John's gospel in John 19, 25? I'll include a link to an article by Dr. James Boyce, who defends the idea that it could have been Cleopas and his wife versus the traditional idea of two men. Anyway, while traveling, they begin to broach the subject with each other. Can you believe it? How can he really be dead? What did we miss? Where's the body? Are we fools? And then a stranger appears and engages Cleopas and his companion in conversation. The stranger asks, hey, what are y'all talking about? And Cleopas replies, um, seriously, are you really the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what happened over the weekend? And I love this. It's so Jesus. He's like, uh, what happened? Jesus, y'all, is the OG, non-anxious, Socratic teacher. If you go back and read Luke 24, you'll notice that Cleopas and the other disciple tell this stranger about Jesus, but they are missing a couple of really important points. They describe him as a prophet, but Jesus was much more than a prophet. Jesus was the son of God. Also, their vision was too small in terms of his mission. They were chiefly concerned with Israel being redeemed from Roman oppression and restored to the glory days of world respect and power under King David, like 900 years ago. But we know that Jesus' mission was so much bigger than that. He was not just interested in restoring the kingdom to Israel, but in restoring Israel and beyond to the kingdom. Then he does something that every biblical uh, Bible student drools over. Jesus leads a Bible study for them. No more wondering what things mean. No more misinterpretation, which is inevitable this side of heaven. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And their hearts burned. That's the Holy Spirit saying, yes, yes, yes. Have you ever felt your heart burn like that? In a powerful church service when someone is suddenly prophesying truth and wisdom over you? Yes, that still happens. When you're out for a walk in a secluded place and you sense you've entered into a thin place, holy ground where God feels palpably near. Man, write those down. Those are important. So after this revelation, while sharing a meal with the stranger, these two disciples were in for the surprise of their life. Something clicked in their heads, in their hearts, and they knew. They knew that the captivating stranger before them was none other than Jesus. Jesus, somehow restored to life, somehow of a new life. 
the travelers abandoned their intentions in Emmaus, and they decided that very night to haul it back to Jerusalem, find the rest of the disciples, and tell them what happened. They arrived to a room full of astonished and excited men and women who had similar stories to tell. Jesus had also appeared to Peter. The room was in an uproar. How could this be? Nothing like this had ever happened before. Was he really raised from the dead? What does this mean? And in the midst of that confused, glorious, exalted chaos, Jesus appears again. And that appearance, that exchange in which he delivered those instructions referred to here in Acts chapter 1 verse 2, is the subject of our next lesson. Some questions to ponder this week. Luke gave over no small portion of his adult life to investigate, research, interview, write, edit, and share to the best of his ability the events and teachings of Jesus' life and the activities of the early church. He chose this mission, or this mission chose him, as an intentional project to further the impact of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So my question for you, there's no shame in this question, no judgment, but to what are you giving your adult life? Man, in our 20s and 30s, there is immense pressure right now to make something of ourselves professionally, to distinguish ourselves, to accumulate wealth, or set ourselves up to rake it in later. And then there's the inundation of distraction. Of course, all the streaming services and social media, but one that gets me lately in the, is the ease of online shopping. I was reading the Bible just this morning, and I wanted to hop on Wayfair real quick to see what kind of deals they had on bunk beds. What in the world? To what are you giving your adult life right now? Career? Mothering, hospitality, friendship, pleasure and comfort, living for Jesus. This question is not meant to imply you're not giving your life to the, to the right or meaningful things. Quite the contrary. I think it's an invitation to notice what those things are, that you might rejoice in the ways God has shaped your heart and your life for his purposes, and maybe create a little tension if there's a lack of clarity or some ambivalence around your sense of calling right now. Second question. Can you remember the last time your heart burned within you? What do you do when that happens? How do you know if the conviction you feel is from the Holy Spirit or from another place? If the idea burning within you is relevant to God's shalom vision for the world, his good purposes for the world, does it matter? How do you discern these things? The scripture says that Jesus gave them orders through the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought that the burning could be the same thing for you? orders from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. If you have a close friend you can confide in about spiritual things, consider sharing your conviction with them and asking them to pray for you that the Holy Spirit, our faithful guide, might reveal a next step for you, that you might walk in faithfulness to God's plan for your life. That's it, week one. Come back for next week when we get all the way through chapter one, verse five. Bye, friends.